Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson. I'm a five-time, 23-year survivor of advanced stage breast cancer. I'm also a motivational speaker, speaker mentor, and the published author of The Hat That Saved My Life. And hi, I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 25-year breast cancer survivor, certified life coach, and the author of my book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. Becky and I are also the co-founders of Breast Friends. And today we're going to start our um, our show with a, a little inspirational moment. And my thinking is I wanted to talk about being a lifetime learner and how important that is as we get a little older. And uh, I know back many, many years ago, um, I decided I wanted to be a reader. And I wasn't a very fast reader, so I couldn't get through books like I wanted to. And so in my quest to um, actually read more books, um, I became an audible listener and uh, listened to a lot of books on tape. And so luckily my library was very, very well stocked with those kinds of things. And so I could pick out books of any different subject and learn a little bit about a lot of different topics. And so that was one way I have always been a lifetime learner. I think another way of doing that is just trying something new. Uh, if you want to become a painter or a photographer or pick up any other sort of habit or or new practice or new hobby, I think there's lots of things out there. And, and now with, with YouTube and all of the different, I call it YouTube University, <laughs> you can learn <laughs> good, anything good you name. want, right? So yeah, I think it keeps can. us young that way. So that's well, good. my little moment. I love that. And, you know, there's always something you can learn every day. And that's, you know, that's kind of a good goal, too, is just to set set your, your idea every day to learn one thing new today. And it might be something really, really small. But, you know, learning one thing new every day is, is a good way to kind of approach that. So today we're going to learn a lot of new things and because we have a wonderful guest. This is Dr. Robert Nagorny. He's the medical and laboratory director at the Nagorny Cancer Institute. He is triple board certified in internal medicine, medical oncology, and hematology. He is recognized for the introduction of, and I hope I don't butcher this name and you can correct me if I do, cisplatin and gemcitabine doublets in the treatment of advanced ovarian and breast cancers. And that's pretty cool. I mean, he was the one recognized for introducing that idea. So, and we're going to learn what that means here shortly. So I'll probably even be more impressed then. Um, He is a clinical professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. He's authored more than a hundred manuscripts, book chapters, and abstracts. He is the author of the book, Outliving Cancer, which, and I hope we have time at the end to talk about that because I love that. Sounds good. I know it's great. And so with that, welcome Dr. Nagorny. We're so happy to have you on our show today. Well, Becky, thank you very much for having me, <clears throat> and nice to uh, meet you, uh, Becky. Uh, rather, Sharon. Sharon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
Well, why don't before we get into the nitty gritty of what we're going to talk about today, why don't you let our audience get to know you just a little bit from a personal uh, position, maybe talk a little bit about your family, your hobbies, if you have time for any, because you're a very busy man, um, <laughs> you know, and all of that, and then lead us up to what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, I'm a native of Connecticut. I uh, studied uh, chemistry as an undergraduate, went on to do my medical studies. Uh, That brought me to a couple of different fellowships, uh, one of which brought me back to California when I was at the Scripps Institute. From there, I joined the faculty at UC Irvine and settled in California. I met my wife here in California, although uh, we had both arrived from Canada. Uh, I was born in the States, but she was born in Saskatchewan. Um, (laughs) And uh, we have, uh, and my wife actually is in the field. She's in uh, uh, cancer research and did a lot of clinical protocol work as a nurse in the research department here. And then um, we had our two boys. One is just finished at Davis and a second is an undergraduate at Chapman University, which is here in Southern California. Both are um, interested in becoming physicians. I don't know if I had an influence on uh, and, Probably uh, so a little bit, anyway. <laughs> from, <laughs> from my uh, areas of interest, I, um, as a hobby, I'm a, I'm a rower, and so we have the luxury of living near the Pacific Ocean, and there are inlets very near our home. So I keep a single shell, and I row to keep uh, keep in shape. Um, I'm a pretty avid reader. I do a lot of basic research, and then you're right that my time is uh, limited. I work pretty much every day. I'm so interested in what I do and what we're working on that I uh, I think I'm a bit of a workaholic. But um, <laughs> we're very, uh, very interested in the growing understanding of cancer biology. It really consumes me. And as you were in- introducing the concept of learning something, I have the a great joy of learning something new almost every day. And, Isn't that and wonderful? If there's, if you know, if there are many things that motivate people, and and you know, for some it's uh, it's possessions, and for some it's money, and for me it's the the beauty of of an insight, of 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 an aha moment, a, a gee, I never thought of it that way, and so I, I love what we do because we're always discovering things, and and almost every day there's one of those ahas I never, I would never have imagined that, and some of that's led to the discovery work that you mentioned earlier in your nice introduction. <laughs> well, you know, it research is so important. We had a guest a couple of weeks ago who's a researcher and you know when when we as a five-time cancer survivor myself I'm on immune therapy right now in a trial and all of these things come about because of people like you and like our other gentleman that was on um, that are doing this kind of work and and kind of raising the bar and making making possibilities for other people that are kind of suffering through this. So we thank you for the work that you do. And I'm really excited to to hear how, how and why did you get into this field to begin with? Well, in my first fellowship uh, at Georgetown University, I had gone from internal medicine training and residency uh, into the study and treatment of cancer. And um, <clears throat> rather quickly, I realized that my patients weren't doing quite as well as I hoped. I, I had come from a from a, a discipline where we could fix heart attacks and, and bleeding disorders, but cancer seemed to be a very vexing and seemingly almost insurmountable problem. The treatment seemed toxic, not often enough effective, mm-hmm. and I was grasping for a way to better do this. And, and I had met a, a recently trained investigator out of the National Cancer Institute. 
And we had both read some papers on the study of human tumor biology in the test tube environment, in the tissue culture environment. The first studies of this type uh, that were published in the 70s and 80s grew cells, that is, propagated cells in the tissue culture. So the idea was that cancer is a disease of cell growth, that if you want to stop cancer, you have to stop it from growing. So all of the test tube models were growing cells that were inhibited. And it didn't seem to be working very well. And meeting up with this new investigator, he said, well, what if we just killed cells outright? What if we used laboratory models that would, would cause the cells to die? And, you know, it seems almost the flip side of the coin, but it's really fundamentally different. And once we began to do it, it worked. Our first papers in the 80s and 90s were showing very good outcomes in patients with relatively difficult cancers. And I wrote my first paper as a fellow and I, I looked at uh, leukemia patients, and and then we began to uh, look at solid tumor patients. And as you mentioned earlier, we developed the combination of cisplatin and gemcitabine in the laboratory using this very model. And that's gone on to become the standard of care for recurrent uh, ovarian cancer and, and widely used for triple negative breast cancer and a number mm -hmm. of other diseases. So, so we were interested in, in what makes a cancer tick. And in the 90s, I was attending some lectures and the term apoptosis or programmed cell death became a buzzword. And I began to look at what I was doing, killing cells in the test tube. And I was looking at what all the scientists were doing, looking at DNA degradation profiles and all these different phenomena. And I realized that we were doing the same thing, that we were, we were doing in the test tube what the scientists were doing at a very fundamental basic science level. And in fact, the Nobel Prize for medicine several years ago was in this field, in the field of programmed cell death. Robert Horvitz uh, received a Nobel Prize for his study of, of all things, a roundworm. It turns out that we, sh <laughs> really? we share, we share in our bodies, in our cancers, we share the same processes by which cells die that are that that the roundworm, uh, the the C. elegans roundworm uses, and in fact they're shared by all virtually all living organisms, multicellular organisms. So I realized that we had stumbled into a very profound field, and and my interest in using it to to study drug effect uh, turned into my opportunity to study new drugs and new combinations and new synergistic interactions, and that that in part led to that cisplatin gem side of being, wow. but, but that, that kind of got me launched and, and that enabled me to demonstrably improve outcomes for my patients. So while we were on one side discovering new ideas and new approaches, my patients were on average twice as likely to respond to the drugs we picked. So it was really a win-win. That's win. great. Well, let, let me just, I'm going to go back just a little bit, just because I'm not a scientist and I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so I just want to make sure I'm, I'm getting a grasp on what you're talking about. So some of the drugs that you're referring to that target and kill specifically cancer cells. These are like general chemo. You know, I've been on so much chemo in my life. Um, and it seems to tackle not just healthy or not just the bad cells, but also the healthy cells. And and that's kind of standard chemo. So is this something different from that? It's not attacking the healthy cells too, right along with it? Well, actually, the chemotherapies were developed from the from the 40s and 50s forward. Chemotherapies were designed to do one thing well, stop cells from growing. Right. So the, the, if you dissect what the chemotherapy actions mm -hmm. are, they either damage DNA, drugs like cytoxin or right. cisplatin, or they prevent cells from synthesizing DNA, drugs like gemcitabine or 5-fluorouracil, <clears throat> or they prevent cells from using DNA, drugs like topotecan or 
arenatikin. Uh, or finally, they stop cells from actually pulling one cell apart from another, and that process of mitosis is targeted by drugs like Taxol. So, oh, okay. so we have a collection of drugs that do one thing very well, stop cells from growing. And we use them repeatedly in the treatment of advanced leukemias and lymphomas and then into uh, cancer of solid tumor origin like breast and colon. The trouble is, as we moved from the cell uh, populations that are growing rapidly, like the, like the blood, leukemia, as we moved into the solid tumors, the drug effects fell off. So instead of these, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent response rates, which are observed in leukemia, we're seeing 20 and 30 percent response rates in breast cancers and and colon cancers and, and lung cancers. And the reason is because these drugs, for all that they were designed to stop cells from growing, these drugs actually damage cells in a way that makes the cells uh, die. Uh, they actually cause the cell to take inventory and if the cell runs up and down its genetic elements or looks at different features and comes to the conclusion that it cannot repair, that it will not be able to survive, that it cannot serve its function, then that cell has been programmed to die and that is a protection that the body puts in place so that we eliminate non-functional damaged or mutated cells and that's called programmed cell death. So interestingly, chemotherapies are very good at doing the wrong thing. <laughs> wow. And, that's not, and, that's not and, what you normally hear, but I, no, I understand. No. And so recognizing that the drugs were badly designed and aren't often used correctly, I said the first thing I could do is to use these drugs better. I would be in a position to better use the available drugs. And that's what we did for the first 10 or 15 years. We just studied the cisplatins and cytoxins. And in about 2,500 peer-reviewed published experiences in the literature in a large meta-analysis, we had a better than two-fold higher response rate and a almost 44% better survival just by selecting amongst these drugs. Now, at that point, we said, well, what could we do with this test, this model, if we applied it to the next generation of drugs? And those are called mm-hmm. targeted agents, and right. they're more selective, like the Herceptins of the world or the epidermal growth factor inhibitors or all of these new drugs that we hear about and, and are, are um, you know, under investigation. We began to apply those, and about 10 or 12 years ago, we began to realize that, yes, we can predict targeted agent responses. And then in the last several years, we've gotten really interested in the fundamental chemistry of life, and that's metabolism. And can we stop cells in their tracks as they make and use energy? And that's really kind of a big direction for us now. That's, you know, I I wrote down something you just said that, you know, you got to a point where you eventually were able to use better drugs, but before that you used the same drugs better, you know, so that's kind of a nice step. I I thought that was interesting. So um, Sharon, you had some questions about I, I just wanted to ask a, a quick question, though. Is this um, part of that con- uh, combining different drugs to get a better result? Like putting cisplatin with your gem? Yeah. <laughs> That one. <laughs> yeah, that was that grew out of work I'd done in leukemia. I realized that many of the drugs have very specific functions. And for example, cytoxin, cisplatin, they they grab onto DNA 
and they and they cause disruptions in the structure of the DNA. So as the cell wants to use its chromosomes for their needed purposes, this uh, this sort of hand grenade grows on goes off in the nucleus, and it breaks up all the DNA elements. Now the body, recognizing this, says, "Well, I've got to go in there with the with the repair crew, and fix all that DNA damage." Mm. And the repair is done with what are called nucleosides. These are the DNA precursors. So if you damage the cell with platinum for this, uh, in this instance, and then you drop into the mix a drug like gemcitabine that is a repair inhibitor, well, then you've got that kind of double whammy uh-huh. where the cell is damaged and can't repair. And that is the single most synergistic combination I've ever studied. Well, actually, uh, in solid tumors, in, in leukemias, the closely related cytoxin and fludarabine. So what we did is we applied this principle of damage and repair inhibition, and that's what led to that doublet. Interesting. Wow. That's that is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a, over my head, no question. But uh, it is a fascinating um, study. I can imagine. So I know we're going to go on break for uh, in a few minutes, but I just wanted to check too about you know when when your uh, breast cancer patient, uh, there's so much talk and so much concern about our diet and lifestyle and how that affects our healing and and uh, and getting beyond our cancer. Can you just talk briefly about that? And then if need be, we'll come back on the other side of the break. Well, yes, uh, it's fundamental to our well-being. We published a large treatise in August of uh, 2018 examining the metabolic basis of human cancer. And what we found is that many patients through life have metabolic uh, abnormalities that may become manifest through lifestyle and dietary issues. So, for example, if you do not metabolize certain foodstuffs well and you eat a lot of them, you may accumulate what would be deemed almost toxic uh, exposures and is it possible that cancer is a manifestation of diet and lifestyle and and I think the answer is yes interesting Interesting. are there are there tests that you I mean this may be a really dumb question so I'm putting myself out on a limb here but you said if you're (laughs) if you eat foods that you don't metabolize well how do you know if you're metabolizing food well well we've been using something called mass spectrometry and that is a very sophisticated technology that allows you to measure the actual concentrations of metabolites in the bloodstream. And yes, the paper that I mentioned in August of 18 uh, was a metabolic study looking at the metabolites in the bloodstream of cancer patients and comparing them to normal controls. So for the average person who just wants to know that they're eating foods that are not causing this problem, how would they determine that? Well. We're just in the process of developing this as a service for patients. It's, okay. it's if the first pass was to get the data generated, and that was the okay. paper. And okay. we're now beginning to develop, in fact, as we speak, we're developing uh, capabilities of offering this to patients so that we can run the bloodstream, examine the metabolites, and hopefully, ah. we, we hope, offer suggestions for how to kind of uh, uh, improve the, the profile and maybe bring patients who are heading in the wrong direction back on track. I love that. That's great. That's really good. Well, you know, we're going to go ahead and take a a short break. So stay tuned. We're going to pick up this exciting conversation on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. 
We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about uh, the current cancer environment with uh, our guest, Dr. Robert uh, Nagorny. And so I wanted to jump right into uh, a topic that I really know nothing about. What is functional profiling? Well, we uh, have been describing the concept of measuring drug effects in the test tube. And what we're basically doing is assessing cellular biology, or what we call functional biology. Functional biology, as opposed to genomics or other studies, doesn't look at the roadmap or the blueprint. It looks at the building. It looks at what you do with your genes. And because life is so complicated, and because how we use our genes is not only under the regulation of the genes themselves, but something called epigenetics and and so many different protein kinetics. So when the message is sent, sometimes it doesn't get there or sometimes it gets changed on the way. And in order Mm -hmm. to look at that complexity, we look at cellular biology. So functional analysis, functional profiling is a mechanism to use human tissue in what we call organoids. These are patient-derived organoids. They're little micro cancers sitting in the test tube. And we use them to probe, as it were. We kind of poke them with a drug or a new agent. And we say, do you like this? Is this something you're happy with? Or does this injure you in a way that will cause death? And our job, if you ask, if you distill down what I do for a living, I kill cancer cells. So we're looking for drugs that cause cancer cells to die. We don't even always know why they die. We just know that they die. And then we recommend that drug or combination to a patient. So that functional profiling is a mechanism to study human tissue in the, prime, in the, in the tissue culture environment. 
So you're not actually testing it on the human. That's that's wonderful. Well, that's right. the beauty. You don't have to give the patient the treatment to find out if it's likely to work. Yeah, oh, that's, that is that's, great. That's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I know that this next segment's kind of, well, I just don't want to run out of time here. So Yeah, um, well, let's jump right into it. And if we need to circle back, we can. But let's let's just go right into the the genetics piece of it, hein? Yeah, I really would. I would really like to do that. Um, so, you know, the the title of this uh, of this program is "You Don't Get Cancer, You Have Cancer," and that title intrigued the heck out of me. Um, I kind of feel I think I know what that means, but rather than me try to guess, I'm going to let you talk about that because you know there's a lot of talk about genetic mutations. Um, you know, myself having two of them, and there's like 26 possibilities, or maybe more now. I don't know. But what? And I know a lot of people think that if you have these mutations, that they cause cancer, and I I don't believe they cause cancer. But what? Can you speak to all? Just just tell us what you can about all of that. Well, um, we have um, a somewhat different take on how cancer arises. The way I see cancer and carcinogenesis is that cells living within this multicellular organism, the metazoan existence, these cells are in need of nutrients, oxygen, blood supply, amino acids, lipids, hormones, growth factors. They're they're thriving in a multicellular uh, mixture of cells that are kind of selfishly trying to get ahead. And as these cells, uh, during the course of aging, or as these cells are deprived of things, they have an option. They're either unable to get enough food or oxygen and will die, or they seek a mechanism to stay alive. And and in that process of selecting a, 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 a way out, the cells might upregulate a normal gene abnormally. Or they might borrow a mutated gene that's sitting in the in the closet and wasn't of any use up until this time. Mm-hmm. So the way we view cancer is that cancer arises under a state of cellular stress. Cells are in need of something. They borrow a gene or a series of genes. And then they become the, the biological process we recognize as a tumor. So, so from a from a standpoint of cancer causation, when you say you don't get cancer, you have cancer. Uh, um, what we think is that many of us come into this life with a given a given set of genetic elements, and how our life plays out, what our hormonal milieu. If you have children before thirty, if you breastfeed for a woman, uh, if you if you are exposed to cigarette smoke that creates a a toxic stressful environment in the lung epithelium. If you work in a metal factory and your bladder is exposed to nickel or cadmium or whatever stress or whatever uh, state of deprivation leads the cell to need to stay alive against a, a state of deprivation, that process leads to the upregulation of genes. Now, the reason we, we haven't unraveled this in the cancer genome is because many of the cancers use normal genes. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, you, you stipulated that there are, there are genes that are causing breast cancer, and we know that. But if we look at the cancer genes, that when we call, like, for example, everyone knows BRCA, right, BRCA, mm-hmm, right. well, what's BRCA? BRCA is a genomic fidelity gene. BRCA is a gene that keeps your genes clean. So when during the course of your life your genes get damaged or free radical oxidative stress or or some disruption or you're exposed to something, the genes get broken and BRCA1 and BRCA2 and, and CHECK2 and ATM and, and, and PALB2 and all of these DNA fidelity genes step up to the plate and say, okay, we've got some damage there and we're going to fix it up. 
Well, if in the course of your life, as you go from your teens to your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, if in the course of your life you're not doing that very well, if you're not repairing very well, well, then your genome is full of broken elements. It's full of you know, mutations and duplications and all kinds of funny things. And if when you're 38 or 49, your epithelial cell, the cell in your breast says, hey, I'd like some more blank, you know, food, estrogen, something, it reaches into a very rich trove of mutations and says, well, I'll just pull up one of these and use that for my purposes. So wow. what BRCA does is allow your cells that are always grasping for something, lots more things to grasp for. That's a wow. fascinating way of looking at it. I think I've it's kind of scary. It, wow. It's, it's scary to me. I just, you know, it's like it's like this little mutant thing growing in my body that's going, <laughs> okay, I think I'll just eat on that for a while. And then, yeah. you know, ugh, but, like but alien. The, but the fascinating part, this explains to me a little bit more about what you were talking about, how we metabolize food or the stress of our just general life, how it can really, it can damage those things in our body. And then our body tries to fix that, it, but it doesn't have the right components to fix it. Is that what I'm understanding? Well, well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, um, a, a bad diet, for example, uh, uh, can do two things. Um, first of all, it may deprive your cells of nutrients that they want. You know, I mean, if you if you uh, eat a lot of carbohydrate-rich diet and you don't get the appropriate protein mix or lipid mix or or, or essential fatty acid mix, whatever, um, then your cells are kind of unhappy. You know, right. they're, they're like, gee, I'm not getting what I want. I, I and then your your foodstuffs. Uh, on the flip side of the coin, if they're high-fired foods with a lot of free radical activity, then they're in the background generating more DNA damage, more mutations, more duplications, and more opportunities for an unhappy cell to find a bad way out. So, if you if a person has spent most of their life eating like that, can they can the damage be undone? Well. What we're interested in doing now is is assessing whether we're born with a collection of predispositions. When you say you don't get cancer, you have cancer. Well, well, what we found in our studies, in our metabolic studies, is that people enter this this world with a collection of maybe not entirely normal functioning enzyme, enzymatic capacities. They, they may be deficient in the way they metabolize long-chain fatty acids, for example. Mm-hmm. Or, or they may have a predisposition to use more glutamine. Or, or they may have a slight ab- normality in something called the ornithine uh, transcarbamylase or urea cycle. There may be some minor issue that is is okay when you're in your 20s and 30s because you're you're still running okay. But when you get into your 40s and 50s, that little knee injury or that, that stress fracture from your teenage years suddenly becomes a problem. And it's sort of that way with, with metabolism and cancer. As we have these these predispositions, these, these inborn predispositions, and then we don't lead a, a healthful life, we put stress on that system. And if it's and if it's a previous knee injury or a previous whatever, 
it becomes manifest. And and in our in our studies, we found that life goes from a state of, of very good health in your your earlier years into a state of of um, metabolic stress, and that will manifest as things like type two diabetes or metabolic syndrome or, or polycystic ovary or or other conditions that are that are uh, clearly metabolic uh, metabolically active abnormalities. And then if you keep that going, and if you don't respond, and if you don't correct it, um, we're not quite sure how to correct everything, but we're at least thinking about it. If you don't correct it, then you tip over into uh, early uh, malignancy, invasive malignancy, and ultimately death from malignancy because this cascade, this waterfall goes over the over the edge and, and it's very hard to get back. Wow. That, you know, that's really, I have to say that that's very inspiring. I, I've not been one who has paid enough attention to my diet. Um, I've eaten poorly at different times in my life. I've eaten well at other parts of my life. And that's part of my question, is it is it repairable? But um, I also know exercise plays a role in all of this. And I'm not sure exactly how exercise benefits this different from how food benefits this. I know it all works together, but is there, you, you explain the food process and what we do. What Can you explain anything extra about exercise? What is it doing to help prevent cancer growth? Oh, yes. Exercise is fundamental <clears throat> to our health. Think, if you think about uh, food and exercise. You can think about food as the fuel of life, and you can think of exercise as as sort of tuning the body, like the oil of life. Okay. And so, and so, exercise is fundamental for the food, the fuel to be used well. So, so when you exercise, you kind of clean up your spark plugs and you reset your carburetor. But the fuel, the food, still has to run through all that. So, what exercise does is to is to place upon each cell a demand for smooth operation. What it says is, I'm using up calories, I'm out there running or swimming or rowing, and I'm using up calories, and you guys better fall in line and generate energy efficiently. And so your body says, oh, okay, so you want us to, to make sure we're using our, our, our lipids in a, in a good beta oxidation way, and you want to make sure that we're using our glucoses, and you want to make sure we're not making glucose when we need glucose. That's a process called gluconeogenesis. So your body tunes when you exercise. And, and, and exercise is very biochemically traceable to an enzyme called AMP kinase. And, and that is fundamental to mitochondrial communication with the cell. So, so exercise is, 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 a, is a, uh, a therapy, really. You know, I, I'm, as you're talking about this, I, I'm a kind of a visual learner and I'm picturing a car and, you know, you put fuel in your car so it'll go, but then you have to take it in for an oil change and clean things out and make sure that it's ready to use that fuel efficiently next time you go to the gas station. So I, I'm kind of seeing exercises that maintenance role, you know, on your car. It's you're keeping things running. It's all keeping everything lubricated the way it needs to be. And then you put fuel in your car so you can actually go the distance. Right. So, and, you, and you want clean oil and you want good gas. Yeah. So exactly. it's, it's right. both, both parts right. of the equation. That yeah. Makes, it makes really a lot of sense. So thank really you for does. explaining it to us. On such a, uh, in a bio, uh, from a biological, is that the word I'm looking for? Standpoint. Or biochemical. 
yeah, yeah. biochemical. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you, you, you t- told us in a level that we can understand because, again, we're not scientists here, but but right. we are, you know, we're pretty smart about this subject. So. Well, <laughs> so and it also explains that. to me a little bit of, you know, I think we've all seen that person who is completely healthy, eats really well, yes. exercises very well. They're on runners. They're yeah. Thin, yeah, they're thin. They're, you know, they're really taking good care of themselves. And they get cancer. And then the next person might be obese and doesn't move at all and and is not taking care of themselves. And they live to a long, ripe age and don't get cancer. Yeah, what's that about? We've got a break in about three minutes. So why don't you spend a couple minutes talking about that? Because that's an interesting one. The analogy of a car is apt. Uh, Imagine that you're born with your engine block. You've got an eight-cylinder engine. And some people are born with a pristine, perfectly uh, uh, engineered engine. And some people are born with one or two cylinders already out. Mm. Now, when you're young and you're running around, maybe you can run on six cylinders. But you're putting out a lot of uh, bad, non-combusted gas. Uh, There's a lot of dirty air going through the carburetor. There's a lot of things running uh, in ways that they shouldn't, but you can get over it. You're young, you're vigorous, your engine's running on six cylinders. So now you start adding in watered down gas, you know, water gas, or you don't change your oil, you don't change your air filter, you don't change your spark plugs, or you don't tune your carburetor. So now if you've only got six cylinders and you're running badly, which is, you know, bad diet, no exercise, even someone who does all the right things, they eat well and they exercise, but they were given a bad hand. And they may just go off the edge into cancer, not because of what they do, but to some degree, their predispositions. And I don't want to sound... Yeah, I don't want to sound nihilistic about our lifestyles, but to some degree, we are given a, a, a hand of cards. I mean, we are, we're dealt what we're dealt. Makes and, sense. And then we have to play it. So you have to play it as well as you can. And some people who are dealt a bad uh, hand can play it well and win. And some people who are given a very good hand can lose. So, so yeah, you might see uh, someone who's got an absolutely perfect uh, biochemistry, but they eat badly and they don't exercise. And they go on a lot longer than you might expect. Right. And then you have some someone who's seemingly doing all the right things and eating well and exercising, and they get a cancer. And and yeah, it may be, and we think that these may be to some degree inborn uh, attributes. Okay. And right. could some of could some of that be because of genetic mutations, or is it? Well, Something everything else. in your body is genes. Everything. I That's mean, obviously, you're, you're, you're a product of your genes. But, but the genes are only the starting point. When you have a gene or a DNA aberrancy or a, a normal gene, will that gene, that mutation become manifest? Or mm-hmm. will it sit in the freezer uh, unused? And, and that, to some degree, plays upon the, the functionality of life, the, the, the day-to-day experience of life. Not just what you're given, but what you use. And that has to do with epigenetics. It has to do with the stressors, the stress that that make a gene that would otherwise be quiet become uh, active. So, so for example, many people carry many mutations, but we may never use them. We may never draw upon them. So the cancer that uses the mutation is probably a cell that needed something. That's interesting. Yeah, because, you know, obviously I got my, my genetic mutations from my, my father because it's all it's on his side of the family but he's never had cancer and he's 92 and he's never had cancer of any kind I think he had a basal cell on his face or something but um, but he's never had 
cancer that would be impacted by this where and his siblings did they all did and my cousins and you know so it's it, it's it's really interesting it is fascinating how, isn't how it they can all have the same set of gene mutations but my dad never ever got cancer so anyway um wow this is a really great conversation and we're going to go out to break and we're going to pick it up one more time on the other side so stay tuned we'll be back in a minute Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. We've been talking about uh, functional profiling with our guest, Dr. Robert Nagorny, and I'm so excited that uh, you've been with us today, and I just want to talk a little bit more, your research um, about identifying breast cancer patients with a a greater than 95% accuracy. How is that possible, and what ramifications does that hold? Well, um, just to clarify, we have different areas of work that we do. The one, the functional profiling, is the study of cell biology and the use of that platform to predict responses and select drugs for patients. And that's a very useful, practical technology that can help patients right now. The other area of work that led from that, recognizing that cell life and death processes were largely metabolic and biochemical, has brought us into the next platform, which is this field of metabolomics. 
Metabolomics takes the, the next generation of cell biology into very measurable uh, metrics. And the, these are um, metabolites. Those are the byproducts of cellular metabolism. So using that approach, using that concept, we've now begun to develop blood tests that profile patients and tell you, are your cells making and using energy differently? And wow. so that's that's the topic of, of, of identifying. This is a, a, a technology that we're working on as we speak. We're hoping to spin off a laboratory that will be able to offer this to patients uh, easily and inexpensively. And what we'd like to do, based on the data of uh, several thousand patients now, we have a pretty good signature for breast cancer. We can see certain lipid and amino acid and hexose uh, uh, byproducts in the bloodstream. And we can and we can now uh, break down people who have more of a cancer pattern, and people who have more of a normal pattern. And 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 we've done this and reported this in in August of this past year. And so using that, and, and I don't want to say that we're offering it yet, but using that, we believe that we could take the blood of a patient who may not know that they have cancer, may not have an abnormal mammogram, or may not be old enough to be getting a routine mammogram, and we might be able to take their blood and say, well. You appear to have a certain glutamine or or aspartate or or long chain fatty acid or hexose pattern that seems to point us toward your your leaning toward cancer, and and we might say to that individual your your biological profile would suggest that you should be more vigilant and and get uh, more frequent uh, ultrasounds and mammograms and be staying on top of your uh, uh, diagnostic workup because this this early, early harbinger seems to work. Now, in the study we did in, in, in about 1,200 patients, the degree of accuracy was stunning. It was about 95%. That is, in a controlled condition, when I took a normal person who we knew was normal, mostly young women, and we took patients who we knew had cancer, we could show the distinction. Now, I cannot say with certainty that that exact degree of accuracy will hold up, but we believe it could. We believe that uh, even if we didn't know who you are, if you fall in the one group or the other, it is highly likely that you'll you'll be moving toward that cancer process. So that's kind of the, the next generation of tests we're doing. So I have so, a question on that. I'm sorry, Sherry. Uh, let, let me just ask, because I don't hold thoughts very well for very long. Um, so if you if you were testing, let's say you were testing my blood and I had no incidence of cancer and you were just kind of telling me that, that I'm in that group that probably or could very likely get cancer in the future because of these levels. Is there anything, I, I mean, besides diligence, because I mean, diligence and testing doesn't prevent cancer. It just helps you catch it earlier. But is there something I can do if... If I am in that group that my my blood's not working the way it's supposed to be working and all these chemicals in my body, all these this DNA isn't functioning properly, is there something I can do um, in addition to obviously food and exercise? Is there something, is there a way to reverse that? Excellent question. And and the, the, the reason I think it's so critical is because in every in every discussion I've had regarding this, including with our intellectual property lawyers, they say, well, if you can tell me I'm going to get cancer and you can't help me, I don't want to know. Yeah. So that's a little bit like people asked if they want to know the day they're going to die. And many people say, no, I don't want to know. Yeah, <laughs> But exactly. if you could not take that plane flight or, or, you know, not take that highway drive and not die, you'd want to know about it. Sure. So yeah. we think that the really exciting thing, and I, I kind of got go off the reservation here because this is really early and I don't know this. We think, we believe 
that we might be able to say, yes, you're now moving in the wrong direction. You have a lipid profile or a hexose, that's a sugar profile, that would suggest to us that you're heading in this direction. Now, the question, and this is what we're going to be doing over the next year, we're going to be running serial tests on patients and we're going to look, or, you know, subjects really, and we're going to look to see if when we intervene with a, with a nutritional or lifestyle change, can we tweak them back toward normal? And, I, and I'm mm. going to be honest, I don't know yet, but okay. that's the idea. Nobody wants to find out bad news if there's nothing to do with yeah, it. So, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. the whole idea here is, is to intervene and do something that will, will bend you back to normal. Yeah, it's kind of like being told your pipes are about to break under your house, but there's nothing we can do to fix right, it or stop it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. one one quick question. I just want to assimilate if I understand you correctly. It sounds like we're moving toward a blood test to, to diagnose cancer. Is that the direction we're going? We, we believe that this test that we published in, in uh, August and our currently just completed study here at UC Irvine, uh, we believe uh, in, in breast and, and in ovarian cancer, which we've just done, um, that we may be moving toward a very, very early detection methodology. Yeah, I, I, I think so. That's exciting. <laughs> that, that is, yeah. That, that is amazing. But to your point, if you can see that you have those... Um, predispositions, if you will, uh, and all of a sudden you like stop eating sugar and perhaps that might be enough or adding exercise or doing something, you know, that we can actually change and actually see the changes in your blood. That's exciting too. Right. You could arguably do this on a serial basis. So you could do one on January and then intervene and then do another one in June and say, well, you're, you're still high or low on this. And, right. and yeah, I mean, that's, that's really, I, I'm really excited by that. In fact, I, yeah. I'm, that's the thing I'm really most interested in. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. So um, there's a question here that is kind of cute to me. So what do you love about garlic, wine, and chocolate? <laughs> Oh, lots of things. Lots and lots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wrote a treatise some years ago on garlic, and and then I gave a series of. We actually also published this treatise on resveratrol, which is in wine, and I became interested in chocolate. We wrote an entire issue of our journal, Journal of Medicinal Food, on chocolate. Anyway, the point is that these foodstuffs are not things that we like just because they taste good. They taste good because they're good for us. Our bodies have evolved around our food supply. And the things that we eat today, the spices, the herbs, the types of foods we eat, satisfy deep needs. So garlic is a an attractive food because it contains thiosulfonates and sulfides and all of these substances that are so good in free radical scavenging and in promoting certain detoxifying enzymes. And similarly, wine and chocolate contain phenolics and anthocyanins and proanthocyanins and still beans and substances that our body wants and needs to stay healthy. So Red in wine, fact, we, white wine, does it matter? Well, well, resveratrol is, interestingly, I mean, the, the highest concentration, it seems, uh, is in, um, in Pinot Noir. Uh, but it's not high, though. So, so, yeah, I mean, the foodstuffs that we eat and the things we crave probably, strangely, reflect very primordial needs that, that manifest as tastes and preferences. And, and red wine appears to be a little, 
better than white wine in that regard. But okay. but um, strangely, actually, uh, chocolate uh, is a big winner. Chocolate is actually more antioxidant than green tea. So so it's it's really strange that that you know with the appropriate kind of low sugar uh, dark chocolates those are really quite good for you. Mm, that's great. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Don't well, have to avoid that candy aisle. Just got to pick the right one. That's yes, good. Exactly. Well, before I don't want to run out of time. I know I keep saying that, but we are getting down to the the wire here pretty soon. So I do have a couple quick questions I wanted to ask you. One is, what does the future of cancer medicine look like? And I, I know the testing. We've talked about the future of testing. What do you think about just medicines in general? And can you speak specifically to immune therapy? Well, clearly, immune therapy is a, a brilliant breakthrough. Um, James Allison, who received the Nobel Prize this year, was one of the first pioneers to, to learn about it. What we realize is that the immune system is an on-off switch, and there's a lot of off switches that we need to back off. We need to get the cells to recognize tumors and go after them. Triple negative has probably been the best breast cancer target, uh, but we think in the future we'll get better and better at immune therapy, and I, it's it's just fantastic therapy. I have many patients living years on relatively non-toxic interventions. From a standpoint of cancer medicine and where we're going, I think, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I think that we will have to return to, to the biochemistry of life. I think we spent way too much time in informatics. We thought that we could peer into the secrets of the cancer gene and learn about cancer. And I think we've overemphasized informatics and we have not emphasized enough of biochemistry and physiology. So if, I, if there's a direction we'll take, I think it will be more along the lines of what we do, phenotypic. It'll be more along the lines of metabolism and biochemistry. The very essence of life, not it's just its information, not just its, its blueprint, but the actual building of life, the substance of life, what I call functional profiling and what we use in drug selection. That's awesome. Well, we are, we've got a couple minutes left to give to you. Um, I want to know about your book. So let's talk about your book, Outliving Cancer. Well, the title came from my work. Uh, after all, I said that cancer, it doesn't grow too much. It, it, uh, it dies too little. And so if cancer dies too little, then, then you've got to live longer than it. And mm-hmm. what we've what we've done in the book is to take patients with unique and unusual experiences where we were able to study them, identify those drugs and combinations that cause their cancer cells to die, and in so doing, allow them to outlive their own cancers. And, and the book is really for a, a general public. It's, it's a little scientific. I do get into some, some details. But for the most part, it's, it's kind of fairly easy reading. It's kind of funny. And it does have chapters like on garlic wine and chocolate and, and <laughs> things that, that you know, might be, might be interesting to the lay public. It also describes how to use our technology. What is it that we do? How does it work? And what will happen if you go to a doctor and say you want it? They might say, oh, no, it doesn't work, or we tried it. There's a lot of things. I actually have a chapter in there called What to Expect When You're Expecting a Meeting with Your Oncologist. So oh, we uh, okay. we try to anticipate these things. I think it's a good treatise on, on what we do and how it works. So how can people get a copy of that? Well, it's it's on Amazon. Okay. Uh, it's it, it's uh, been carried in many of the major bookstores. It's uh, I think Amazon's the easiest way. It's called Outliving Cancer. Uh, I'm the author, and uh, I, I, I it's been quite a popular book. Actually, we we uh, a lot of people uh, come into my office to see me with it. <laughs> so that's, well, they, that's they've good. already read about it. So all of this 
research that you've talked about today, is there a link that people, if they want to learn more about some of the things that you're talking about or look up some of the words that you mentioned that maybe they don't know what that what it means, is there a, a good link they can go to, to as, a, as a resource? Well, we, we have a website. The Nagorni okay. Cancer Institute has a website, and you can easily go on there. We have a list of published papers on our work. Uh, we have a blog, which updates people okay. on new cases and new ideas, and we have okay. a lot of writing on foods and all kinds of things. And what's the website address? Uh, it's the, the, the Nagorni Cancer Institute is the uh, is the handle. Okay. Dot edu dot or dot com? com? Or? Uh, dot com. Okay, dot com. great. All right. Well, um, hopefully we'll have a lot of people that will go and, and look at that. And certainly the um, book title. I love the book title. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time today. I know you're a very busy man, as we've already discussed and for you to take an hour out of your day to meet with us and do this interview is is really wonderful. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you very um, much for having me. We're happy to do certainly, it. Certainly, certainly. So for our listeners out there, you know, we have a worldwide audience. They're global. We've got listeners in Ireland, a whole bunch of them, and all over the all over the globe. And we're really excited to have people, you know, get on and listen to our show. Um, if you like the show and this is something you'd like to see continued, please consider going to our website, which is breastfriends.org. And there's a big blue button at the top of the page. Please click on that button and make a donation in any amount because that helps not only support the radio show, but all of the programs that we do. All of our programs are available free to our patients, but we got to pay for them. (laughs) So anyway, if you like what we're doing, please consider making a donation. Or if you're interested in sponsoring our radio show, we would love to talk to you about that. You get ads and promotions and things, you know, besides that. So um, we are here to help you every step of your journey. So if you have questions, if you're in the midst of a diagnosis that you just got hit with and you don't know where to turn or what to do, please give us a call um, at our 800 number, which I can't think of what it is right now. So I'll give you our local number. It's 503-598-8048. You can talk to any of our volunteers um, or you can look at things online on our website, or you can reach us at mail at breastfriends.org. And on that, we will be back next week. And until then, remember, there is always hope, and we're here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.